0: This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation.
1: I happen to be kind of a reality TV addict and...
0: Oh my God, same. (laughs) So there's no shame admitting that here. We love reality TV. I think
1: it's, it's quelled a little bit in recent years. But yeah, at the time, I just thought, you know, if there's ever a group of people... Who are going to be able to test this hypothesis that, you know, by doing enough exercise, you could prevent the fall in resting metabolic rate? This might be the group of people.
0: Welcome to Wellness: Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bilardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Okay, guys, today you're going to hear part one of one of my most favorite podcast episodes ever. Today, we're interviewing one of my favorite scientists in the world of nutrition, Kevin Hall. Dr. Kevin Hall received his PhD in physics from McGill University and is a senior investigator at the National Institute of Health, where he's the section chief of integrative physiology. His main research interests are the regulation of food intake, macronutrient metabolism, energy balance, and body weight. Dr. Halls developed mathematical models and computer simulations to help design, predict, and interpret the results of clinical research studies conducted by his laboratory to better understand human nutrition and metabolism. He's twice received both the NIH Director's Award and the NIDDK Director's Award, and is the recipient of the Evie McCollum Award from the American Society for Nutrition, the Lilly Scientific Achievement Award from the Obesity Society, and the Guyton Award for Excellence in Integrative Physiology from the American Society of Physiology. Kevin is very humble, so he'll probably get mad at me for saying this, but I will tell you that he is one of the most brilliant scientists that I know. And I'm lucky to call him a friend because I have learned so much from him over the last several years. And through him, I've greatly expanded my understanding of metabolism, nutrition, and physiology. During this two-part episode, we're going to cover a lot of ground, including Kevin's brilliant metabolic ward studies at the NIH, which are a frequent topic of conversation in the nutrition world. In our first episode, we're going to discuss Kevin's research in metabolism, energy expenditure, and weight loss. And we deep dive into his research on the participants of the show, The Biggest Loser. We discuss whether or not the myth is true that extreme exercise like that depicted on the TV show through building muscle mass would prevent the usual fall metabolic rate during weight loss, as promised by many exercise and fitness gurus. We also discuss how increased physical activity may play an important role in weight maintenance and different possible reasons why. And we discuss so much more about the nuances of weight loss. Obesity and nutrition science in general. So, definitely stick around for this episode and join me to dig in. So, today we are here with someone who I talk about all the time on the podcast, on social media, refer to his work constantly, nonstop, Dr. Kevin Hall. And he is here today. I'm so excited. Dr. Hall, you've done a lot of phenomenal work as a senior investigator and the chief of integrative physiology section at the NIH, the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Disease, where your lab investigates how metabolism in the brain adapt in response to a variety of interventions from diet and physical activity and a variety of different things. So thank you so much for being here. You know, I am uh, beyond the biggest fan you have of your work. It's so phenomenal and it's uh, it's changed so much of the way we look at nutrition. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we just had Herman Ponzer on the podcast where we discussed, of course, a lot of your phenomenal work. And so I would love to start out with discussing your Biggest Loser study where your intention was to investigate whether the extreme exercises depicted on the TV show would essentially translate into sparing of fat-free mass. And for anyone listening who doesn't know the term fat-free mass, that's essentially all of your body components except for fat. So this is muscle, organs, fluids, everything. And thereby, you know, the hypothesis was that by sparing fat-free mass that you could prevent this usual fall into uh, resting metabolic rate uh, during weight loss. And um, this is something that is commonly touted by, uh, you know, exercise and fitness gurus. So if you don't mind explaining uh, what you found in the initial study and what you found six years later in the follow-up study and what it means for the common claim that weight loss diets destroy metabolism.
1: Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So I think you set that up really perfectly in terms of what the initial purpose of the study was, right? You look at any sort of health and fitness magazine or, or you know, sort of workout Guru. And they'll talk about, you know, how important it is to do, you know, resistance exercise training in particular to keep your muscle mass high, because they will say that, you know, that's one of the biggest determinants of your metabolic rate, how many calories you're burning, even when you're not doing the exercise. And the other kind of flip side of that is this idea of the starvation response. The idea that if you just cut calories in your diet, you know, your metabolism will slow down in a Really profound way. And, you know, people used to think, a lot of people still do think that that's the main reason why, you know, you stop losing weight after six to eight months on a, on a diet program. And so, what hadn't really been tested was whether or not, if you actually did get a group of people who were cutting the calories in their diet to try to lose weight. But also were engaged in really intensive exercise, um, including resistance exercise, whether or not they could prevent that fall in metabolic rate, and then perhaps lose weight for a longer period of time, have an easier time of it, um, and maybe not regain some of that weight. And so, um, you know, I happen to be a kind of a reality TV addict and...
0: Oh my God! Same. So there is no shame admitting that. Here we love reality. I think it's
1: it's quelled a little bit in recent years, but yeah, at the time, um, you know, 2012 or so, which was I think when we were starting this this Biggest Loser study, a friend of mine kind of um, keyed me into this, and I I happened to sort of see, you know, basically these just a train wreck of a television program. To be honest, I mean, it's just awful. Um, You know, fat shaming. It's just unbelievable but it clearly depicted a group of folks being abused, but clearly doing a lot of exercise of all kinds of exercise, aerobic exercise, resistance exercise. And you didn't really get an indication of how much they're eating. They weren't like filming them or you can't really film people not eating. Right. So (laughs) it's, uh, that's not good television. Um, But basically it seemed like you know, at the end of the, each episode, they were losing an incredible amount of weight. And, you know, past seasons, I kind of found like people who'd lost, you know, well over a hundred pounds. And that seemed to be like the average amount that a person would lose on a previous season. And so I just thought, you know, if there's ever a group of people who were going to be able to test this hypothesis that, you know, by doing enough exercise, you could prevent the fall and resting metabolic rate, this might be the group of people. And so uh, it's a long story, but we eventually got some folks out there to Malibu to kind of measure their total energy expenditure at various time points using doubly labeled water, which I know you talked with Herman Ponser about. Um, We also had a resting metabolic rate cart out there to measure their resting um, metabolism.
0: And just to refresh everyone, so total energy expenditure versus resting metabolic rate.
1: Right. Sure. So resting metabolic rate is measured basically um, people uh, overnight fast. So they haven't eaten for at least 10 to 12 hours, sort of a dimly lit room, kind of relaxing. They lay down. They don't fall asleep. We basically put a hood over their head and are measuring their breathing while they're just resting. Um, And we do that for about 30 to 45 minutes. And we're measuring their oxygen consumption and their carbon dioxide production. And because we know how many calories are burned when you oxidize carbohydrate, fat, and protein, um, by measuring those two quantities, we can uh, calculate how many calories they're burning when they're not moving around. The doubly labeled water method, on the other hand, um, is a way of measuring um, carbon dioxide production over an extended period of time, a week or two. And so it gives you an average of the carbon dioxide production over that week or two um, when you're doing everything that you're doing over a week, right? Not just resting, you're sleeping, you're moving around, you're, in this case, doing a lot of um, exercise as well, and it's measuring the amount of carbon dioxide production. And then you can make some assumptions about um, about you know what proportion of carbs versus fat that those folks might be burning, and then you can calculate how many calories they were burning in total. Um, so, we did those kinds of measurements. We also measured um, body composition with DEXA. This happened to be the physician who is in charge of the care of these folks. He had a little Beverly Hills weight loss clinic and a, the same DEXA machine that we have at the NIH. So, we did those measurements out at his clinic. Um, and so, we had these folks measured at baseline, even before they knew they were on the show. We figured out who was going to be um, on the show and we measured their sort of habitual uh, total energy expenditure before they arrived in, in Malibu. And then we measured them again at six weeks into this crazy um, weight loss competition. Uh, and then at the end of a 13-week period where everybody who was remaining at the ranch in Malibu was uh, measured again, and then um, they all went home And uh, 30 weeks, they were all invited back to Los Angeles for the final sort of weigh-ins for their finale show. And we measured them in that period of time. Um, So that's kind of the first period. And then we basically repeated those measurements uh, six years later at the NIH in Bethesda.
0: And so... Uh, Can you take us through what you found during the first round of of the study before the six-year follow-up?
1: Yeah, so um, by making these measurements, we could basically put them together and kind of come up with a sort of integrative picture of what was happening to metabolism, to body composition, to energy balance, you know, what's the deficit between the calories coming in and the calories being expended. And, you know, it's no joke, these people are really doing an incredible amount of exercise. And so using the doubly labeled water method and measuring resting metabolic rate and their rate of fat mass loss and fat free mass loss, we were able to to calculate that these folks were doing the equivalent of about three hours of vigorous exercise every day, seven days a week while they were out there on this ranch in Malibu. And, you know, that's that's insane. I mean, (laughs) and at the same time that they're doing that, that's the average. They have on average cut 65 percent of their baseline calories. So they're eating about 1300 calories a day, burning in excess of 5000 calories a day, while they're on this ranch in Malibu. Um, And, you know, those are just, maybe it's not quite exactly that number of galleries. I can't remember exactly what it was, but a huge deficit of energy. And they're losing weight at a rate of about a pound a day, a linear sort of weight loss just over the entire 13 weeks that they're out on this ranch. And when they're sent home, their rate of weight loss basically gets cut in half. They're basically told, keep it up. (laughs) They have to go back to their regular lives. And they're still doing about an hour of vigorous exercise every day, seven days a week until week 30 when they all come back. And you know, it was just kind of amazing. Uh, they actually did preserve their fat-free mass quite well. So they're building muscle a little bit, but they're losing a lot of body fluids and whatnot. Um, but that didn't in no way prevent the reduction in metabolic rate. Metabolic rate fell quite substantially to the tune of several hundred calories per day. Um, even greater than you would expect, just based on the fact that these people are now much smaller people. You know, they've lost on average, I think it was more than 120 pounds um, over the course of this 30 weeks. That's the average. There's a huge variability in that amount. And yeah, their metabolic rate fell by more than you'd expect based on just their body composition change, just to kind of give your listeners an idea here. Smaller people generally burn fewer calories at rest, Um, and they also burn fewer calories when they're doing physical exercise because it takes less work to move around a smaller body. And so both of those factors were at play, obviously, in these folks who are losing an incredible amount of weight. But then the measurements suggested that there was a disproportionate slowing of metabolism as a result of this crazy intervention that they'd signed themselves up for.
0: So then after your initial study then the idea was kind of that being on a severe caloric restricted diet and doing all this activity and losing weight really fast can cause you to break your metabolism and cause you to have a, a kind of like damage to your ability to you know continue to lose weight.
1: Yeah, that's the way it was reported. And you know, I think even digging into a little bit of those initial results suggest that, you know, maybe something a little bit more interesting was going on because when we decided to kind of go back and look to see, okay, well, you would expect if your metabolism is slowing down to such a great degree that you would have a harder time losing weight, right? Because you're burning fewer calories. And so the prediction of that, in other words, being damaging your metabolism, therefore making it harder for you to lose weight would be that the people who had the greatest slowing metabolism should have had the least amount of weight loss, right? But in fact, exactly the opposite was true. The people who lost the most weight on the program during that 30-week intensive weight loss competition, those were the ones who had the greatest slowing of metabolism. Um, They were also the ones who had cut the most calories from their diet. And it turned out that the biggest predictor of who lost the most weight during that 30-week weight loss program was the folks who were able to cut calories in their diet the most. The amount of energy that they expended in physical activity, while it probably played a big role, the variation between people in the amount of exercise that they did did not predict who lost the most weight.
0: Wow, okay, that's a really important point. And so then six years later, you follow up with the Biggest Loser contestants and what happened in your study there?
1: Yeah, so it it was no secret really that you know, people who lost that kind of weight in this unsustainable, crazy platform <laughs> were going to regain quite a lot of weight, right? And so the question was uh, that we had at the time was, okay, well, was it the folks who had the greatest slowing of metabolism at the end of this competition who re- would regain the most amount of weight later? After all, that's that sort of damaged metabolism perspective that, you know, there was already a hint, even in that initial study, that that might not be exactly what's going on. And so that was the hypothesis, right? The people who had the greatest slowing of metabolism would have regained the most weight. The fact that they had regained the weight would suggest that you know, maybe um, their metabolism would have recovered, right? So they've clearly gotten larger, so their metabolic rate should have gone back up. They're no longer probably in this large deficit of calories. Um, they're not in a weight loss competition anymore. And so that sort of um, energy deficit aspect shouldn't be there anymore. And so we decided to bring these folks back into the NIH this time and then redo these measurements and see if those predictions held true. And they did not. There was absolutely no relationship between who had had the greatest slowing in metabolism at the end of the weight loss competition and who would regain the most weight. People. On average, had regained about two thirds of the weight that they'd lost. There was one person who had continued to lose even more weight at six years than they had at the end of the thirty-week competition. But everybody else had regained at least some of the weight. Some people had regained all of it and more. Others had kind of a, um, a more moderate increase in weight. On average, at six years compared to where they were at baseline, they had basically decreased their body weight uh, by about thirteen percent. So that's actually for a lifestyle intervention alone.
0: Very clinically significant. Yeah, it's
1: not bad, right? It it just looks like a failure to a lot of people because of how much weight they'd lost in this crazy competition, right? The the fact that they regained this weight. They had actually still on average uh, maintained a quite high level of physical activity. Again, measured with the doubly labeled water method to see how many calories they were burning in non-resting times. The biggest surprise was that as you recall, we had predicted that as they'd regained the weight, that their met- metabolic rate would have gone back up. On average, it didn't. It stayed the same level as it was at the end of the 30-week competition, despite the fact that they'd regained, on average, two-thirds of the lost weight and were no longer in a severe energy deficit. So that was extremely confusing. And you know, to be honest, remains confusing, although we have some newer ideas about what might have been happening. Um, Because most other studies, while people are in in an energy deficit, in other words, while they're still cutting calories and burning more calories than they're consuming, this sort of slowing of metabolism is well known. But once that stops, once you kind of either plateau on your weight or regain your weight, there's a lot of data out there that suggests that if there is an effect of continued slowing of metabolism at rest... It's very, very tiny. It's, you know, on the order of 100 calories a day or so, probably a lot less. Some studies fail to see any difference at all.
0: Yeah, I know you mentioned in your paper from this year, 2022, that similar degrees of metabolic adaptation have not been observed in response to long-term weight loss regimens that don't involve greatly increased physical activity. Right. You mentioned that the, the Biggest Loser contestants six years later, were they all, all still in... Uh, greatly increased physical activity, like still doing, um, not as active as they were on the show, but still performing a lot of physical activity?
1: Yeah, they're all still, well, I mean, I don't know about every single one of them, but on average, yeah, they were still quite physically active. So clearly greater than they were at the beginning. So um, compared to baseline, I think the median increase was like 80% more physically active, now then and so there were some people who were like 160 percent was like so we what we ended up doing was doing a median split to see you know if uh if we split up this group in terms of the people who had successfully maintained the most weight versus those who'd regained it the biggest predictor here was how physically active um they had become so the folks who had increased their physical activity the most from baseline were the ones who were most able to sustain uh, their weight loss over six years, the ones who had slipped backwards um, towards their original physical activity. Although no one, like I said, no one necessarily went all the way back, but they would have, uh, they had the greatest difficulties maintaining the weight loss. So remember, that's the exact opposite of what I told you about what happened during the weight loss phase, right? There I said it was, Physical activity variance between the contestants didn't explain who was losing the most weight. Now it explained most of the differences in the ability to sustain weight loss over time. And that's quite consistent with a lot of other studies that have suggested that, you know, people who have been successful at maintaining weight loss, one of the consistent findings is that they tend to engage in a lot of physical activity.
0: So the confusion there, and even for me trying to like sort this out in my brain is so like how much... Is the persistent metabolic adaptation and the reduction in the resting metabolic rate from sustained physical activity six years later, like how much of it is due to the sustained like physical activity or some sustained caloric restriction, right? Because there has to be some degree of caloric restriction still there for, in order for them to maintain weight well, loss.
1: Both groups, the ones who regained much of the weight that they lost and the ones who maintain it. Now we're talking about on average, the ones who regained basically were back to where they were at baseline. And the ones who sustained were down by 24%. And were
0: the ones who regained eating more uh, calories? No, so that's
1: part of what I was going to say, is that, is that when you look at their calorie intake of those two groups compared to where they were at baseline, they're both down about 300 calories a day. No, not significantly different between them. It was really this physical activity that was really separating these two groups. So they both, yes, were consuming slightly fewer calories per day. Um, one group had regained pretty much all the weight. The other group had sustained a 24% weight loss at six years. Um, and the biggest difference between them then was not what they were eating, but was what they were doing um, with this non-resting energy expenditure, which we think is probably mostly physical activity.
0: Okay. So sort this out for us. Cause now (laughs) even, even now, even I'm confused. Go ahead. I'm, what is your, your thoughts on why?
1: So, so one of the things that is again, important to kind of contrast is, you know, what other people have seen in other studies where they don't involve long-term sustained physical activity uh, differences. Right. And that's that. Yes. Most, a lot of people will lose weight temporarily with a diet, and they'll plateau after, you know, within the first year, and then they'll start to regain slowly. And there's, again, variability. Some people are more successful than others at keeping the weight off. Um, but when you look at resting energy expenditure, uh, there tends to be, you know, a reduction initially as they're losing weight, but disproportionate to the amount of weight that they lost. Once they kind of reach the plateau and regain, the resting energy expenditure seems to be more in line with their expected. New body size, so there this sort of metabolic adaptation that greater than expected slowing of metabolism doesn't seem to persist, Um, or if it does, it's a relatively small amount. Contrast that with what we saw in the Biggest Loser, right? So yes, they had the greater than expected slowing of metabolism during the weight loss phase, and then that sustained at six years despite regaining much of the lost weight. Um, We had no explanation for that um, when we did that study. But uh, the other thing that I hadn't mentioned yet is that even at six years, it was the folks who had the greatest success at weight loss at six years who had the greatest reduction in metabolism. They had the sustained reduction in metabolism. So again, the thing that you would think was preventing them from losing weight, it was actually reversed. And so the way that we thought about it then, and we still think about it now, is whatever they were doing to keep their weight low or lose it in the first place, it's the metabolic adaptation is acting in response to that. It, it, yes, it would have been great if it hadn't happened. You would have lost even more weight and kept off even more weight, but it's kind of like you're tugging on a spring and the spring is pulling back. So that obviously the stretch of the spring might be like your lost weight. And so the harder you stretch the spring, the more weight you've lost, but also the harder the spring pulls back. So the tension on the spring is the metabolic adaptation. The stretching of the spring is the intervention that you're doing in order to kind of lose the weight. And of course, the length of the spring is the amount of weight that you've lost. So the question is, what is the primary factor that um, was tugging on the spring? I think that during the weight loss phase, it was the calorie cut in their diet, whereas later on, it was the physical activity. And so both of those things, both of those interventions have a response in resting energy expenditure, uh, causing you to kind of have that increased tension on the spring, thereby uh, make it kind of resist the weight loss. But it doesn't that's not determinative, right? These people were able to make these changes for whatever crazy reason it was on the program or whatever they were able to fit into their day-to-day life at home. Um, they were able to sustain those changes. Now, it's the question is, uh, why didn't other studies see this later on? And I think that the answer is because, well, they, didn't, they weren't having people doing a, an incredible amount of physical activity later on. Uh, those previous studies were basically mostly calorie restriction studies. And as people regained the weight that they lost, their calorie restriction is also relaxing backwards towards normal. They weren't sustaining high levels of physical activity. So the prediction is that if we were to kind of repeat a study and do a longer term, kind of randomize people to either a lot of physical activity or very little physical activity, then you might be able to replicate these findings and tease out the questions that you're interested in. Right now, it's just a hypothesis, right? It's just, we think that, you know, that seems to be consistent with some of Herman Pontzer's work that you know, maybe one of the things that's happening is that these folks are still engaged in a very high amount of physical activity. And it's been sustained now for many years, that that has to show up somewhere else in the energy budget, if you're not going to change your total number of calories. And in our case, we were able to observe it in the resting metabolic rate, which is, again, not something that Herman's been able to see so far.
0: Yeah, so that's where it's like counterintuitive to me. And I'm trying to kind of wrap my brain around it okay so so you have two groups and and this is like hypothesis based, obviously but we have two groups and you know they like say for example like you know they did both did caloric restriction they both lost a lot of weight in the setting of also increased physical activity and um lots of exercise and then similar to biggest loser you follow them six years later so so both groups six years later say are still at the same calorie deficit whatever it is they're eating the same amount of calories per day We're assuming. And one is exercising, one isn't. And the group who's exercising has been able to maintain their weight more than the group that isn't exercising. Now, is that like kind of what we like a summary of like kind of what you saw?
1: Well, of course, we didn't have the other group, right? But but the hypothesis would be that, yes, if you had those two groups, um, then the one that was the most physically active potentially would have sustained their weight loss a little better than the other group. And when you then adjust their metabolic rate for their new body size, for the resting metabolic rate, especially if you could do it in a respiratory chamber as opposed to just the snapshot that we do with these carts, the prediction would be that um, the folks who are doing the most exercise would have the lower resting metabolic rate. We did see that in The Biggest Loser, but we have no comparison, right? We didn't have that other group doing the same stuff. Yeah. So it's a hypothesis.
0: And so I guess my question would be, okay, so if they're able to maintain the weight loss with the, like the group that's doing more exercise. So within the constrained energy model, then When we're talking about, for example, the Hadza, we're talking about well, they may have a similar metabolic rate to someone who's a in the United States that's just kind of like at their desk all day, even though the Hadza are exercising and out all day and just moving a lot, and that Panzer was kind of attributing to then the Hadza have less, you know, uh, of their energy, like from their energy bank, going to things like autoimmune disease or inflammation or things that can cause chronic disease, in this setting. When you see the individuals that are maintaining weight loss, let me see if this makes sense. If you have individuals that are maintaining weight loss that are um, versus the group that isn't, but they're eating the same calories, but one group's exercising, does that mean that within the constrained energy model, then the actual exercise is burning adipose tissue or burning actual calories versus in Herman's example, where it's just that the Hadza, the increased activity is like they're just staying the same weight because their increased activity is um, in their constrained energy model and in their energy bank is helping to prevent their body from doing other sort of things like autoimmune disease and things like that.
1: Well, I mean, I think that in both cases, we're after these, these folks have lost the weight and then kind of restabilized it wherever they're stabilized six years later, they're, everybody's in a state of energy balance again, right? Mm-hmm. So, so so it's just a matter of where is the budget, right? What is the budget for physical activity? What's the budget for all the other stuff that you're doing? How much is coming from the thermic effect of food? And, you know, we talk about energy expenditure and energy budgets as if we understand exactly exactly where all of that is occurring. And, you know- It's
0: going everywhere, right? Like, that's, I think, the thing that I realized talking to Herman is that, like, it's going into everything. It's going into this conversation we're having now. It's going into our cells that are doing everything.
1: Well, yeah, that's the thing, is that people misunderstand what metabolism really means. I mean, metabolism is a really fundamental concept. It's this sort of flow of matter and energy that is responsible for building every aspect of every cell of our body, as well as powering it it's um just this it it is so essential to life itself that you know when nasa engineers were looking for signs of life on mars they designed metabolic experiments because we as scientists cannot conceive of life without metabolism it's the only way you can get basically you know complex organized systems that don't violate the principles of physics because we have to have a flow of matter and energy that, um, that, that heats up the universe. And to do that, you need some sort of metabolism. And so what we're really interested in is, of course, if we could measure all of the processes that are going on in every cell of our body, you know, it's pumping out, you know, sodium and pumping in potassium, and it's, um, you know, maintaining all of these gradients of ions, of concentrations of different chemicals, you know, it's building all of the proteins of our body, which are in turn, some of those are, you know, regulating the flow of nutrients and whatnot. It's all of these processes require energy. We can't measure things at that level. Right. So, so all we can do is kind of measure at the net kind of inflow, outflow. We have some ideas about some organs are busier than other organs at certain times of day. Your brain is pretty much busy all the time. So is your heart So or your lungs, but other organs like your skeletal muscle can vary in their uh, energy expenditure enormously depending on whether or not you're actually exercising or laying down, and we're measuring your resting metabolic rate. So, um, it's very difficult to know what is going into that energy budget.
0: Yeah, because I guess like the the confusion for me is so if the caloric intake is. The same, like you're not saying that the people who are regaining are like, you know, eating a ton more calories like you're saying the people who are regaining and the people who are staying the same, essentially the same calorie deficit proportional to their weight or proportional to what they were before. Well, they're not
1: in a deficit anymore. Right. I think that's that's the point right? Is, is that is that the folks who are larger are now burning more calories when they're moving around, but they're not moving around as much right? And so you've got, basically, they're eating a certain amount of calories, and that has to be balanced by the amount of calories that they're burning. And they're, if the, they've regained more weight, then they're larger, and their resting metabolic rate should be higher, but it's not that much higher, right? It's still relatively low, but they're moving larger bodies around, and so they're burning more calories that way. And then you've got the other group who is now very physically active, and they're smaller, but they're very physically active per kilogram of body weight. Um, And their resting metabolic rate is even lower, both because they're smaller and because they have the sustained metabolic adaptation. That's that's kind of the physical activity and the constrained model is saying to other parts of the energy budget, we don't need you as much. We've really got to slow down because we've got to devote more calories to physical movement because it's going to cost calories. And so I think what we have is you have, and the same is true with, with Herman studies of the hadza compared to people western populations right the the, the hadza are much smaller people right they have lower fat free mass on average they have much lower fat mass on average i can't remember if they're as, as the same t- um, height as as western populations or not but we have to somehow normalize for the differences in their body composition. And the same thing is true with the folks who regained more weight than who maintained uh, the, their weight loss. in the biggest loser, they are different size people and we have to adjust for that somehow. So, and the fact is that we know just from the laws of physics that moving larger things around, they have more inertia. They have to, they have to invest more energy to move those things around. And for whatever reason, because again, we don't know all of the details about exactly what constitutes resting metabolism. There's protein turnover costs a certain amount of calories, right? Fat turnover costs a certain amount of calories. Costs a certain amount of calories to make glucose out of, uh, you know, uh, glycerol and lactate and all of these other. So all of these things cost energy, and we can't at that level of the sort of cellular or biochemical level assign that we understand exactly where does all of the resting metabolic rate come from there's a lot of places as Herman mentions where we can kind of maybe cut into a little bit of cost savings here don't do so much of this don't do so much of that maybe that can add up to a savings of calories but of course there's probably some downside to not doing so much of those other things if you're exposed to a situation where you need to do more of those things
0: so even though the people who didn't Regain weight, you said we're continuing most exercise activity. And the people who did regain had less of the same activity level. So the confusion may be, well, was that group also in a calorie surplus, the one that regained weight?
1: They had to have been at some point, right? At some point, but at the time that we measured them, you know, we basically had given people scales for the two weeks before they came in to see if they were gaining weight or losing weight or... And, you know, there's a lot of weight fluctuations, but there was no indication that on average, people were gaining or losing weight. It was basically they were weight stable. So yes, clearly, since the end of the crazy weight loss competition at 30 weeks, pretty much everyone had gone back into some sort of positive calorie balance because they, on average, gained weight. But at the new point in time when we saw them, six years later... Um, it didn't seem like that was ongoing at a rapid rate, at least any to anything that we could detect. So what we're really looking at is a snapshot now six years later where you've got relatively weight-stable people at different weights doing different amounts of activity and consuming different amounts of calories. And the question was, what best explained why some people were now at a lower weight than the other people who regained more weight? And the biggest, biggest explanatory factor was physical activity, and that was also related to the amount of metabolic slowing that was ongoing.
0: People at a lower weight they have to be on a totality of the six years they have to have consumed less calories than the people who gained weight, right? Like, like exercise in and of itself isn't what helps maintain weight loss, right? I don't know. Maybe
1: it does because I think that the other thing that to consider here is that you know you have. You have two things going on, right? You've, decre- you've decreased the total number of calories that you're expending because um, that rest, because you're a smaller person after you've lost the, the, that weight. Um, and so, to burn anywhere near the same number of calories that you were doing before, you would have to be exercising like crazy. Okay? That's even according to the sort of additive model that we talk about before, before you even consider you know, that that added exercise might actually slow down metabolic rate, even if you maintain the same amount of weight. We don't know that that's true, but that's a, it's a reasonable hypothesis. And Herman thinks that that is true. But at the same time, we also know that as people lose weight, we've been focusing pretty much solely on the energy expenditure side here. But, you know, we've done some other studies where, you know, we are covertly changing how many calories are taken out of the system and seeing if people adapt in terms of eating more calories to compensate. And it seems like people's appetite goes up um, as they lose weight. So for every kilo of weight that you lose, you want to be eating about 95 calories per day more than you were before you lost the weight. So you've got two things going on. Metabolism is slowing down. You're a smaller person. You're burning fewer calories, and you want to eat more. And that amount that you want to eat more seems to be proportional, at least for some period of time, to the amount of weight that you'd lost. So, if you are physically active and can offset some of that increased appetite by yes, you can now eat those calories because you're burning them through physical activity maybe the feedback strength through that circuit isn't quite as strong because because you're able to eat a little bit more calories because you're doing the physical activity. At least that's one hypothesis. Again, these are complicated, dynamic, interacting factors that you want to tease apart individually, um, not doing the kind of crazy study that we did, which was nice in one sense that we have repeated measurements on the same people, right? That's, that's already a little bit different than most of Herman's studies, which have been, you know, just like, let's take a snapshot of the Hadza. Let's take a snapshot of these other people. We only have one time point here. At least we have, you know, multiple time points in the same people as they're kind of undergoing this, you know, these dramatic weight changes and dramatic changes in their lifestyle. But what we really want to do is we want to have, you know, parallel groups of people where we do controlled interventions, where you assign one of them to you know, one sort of diet and another to um, a diet plus physical activity, and, and then make longitudinal measurements going forward and try to tease apart these different aspects and focus a little bit at least on the appetite side of things as well, which is something that um, is more difficult to study.
0: Yeah, so you, that's so interesting. This is fascinating because you explain in your paper one hypothesis, which you just mentioned, but you said increased physical activity expenditure could possibly possibly attenuate the feedback signal controlling appetite because increased activity expenditure is only partially compensated by reduced resting metabolic rate, so therefore it still allows for greater energy intake at a given level of sustained weight loss. So that's that makes total sense. And so the essentially then the however many calories you're burning from working out may give you that extra However many, like say, that's the, the, I guess that would be the question. So the person who's still doing an hour of exercise a day, how, how many more calories does that allow them? 300 calories more a day, a thousand more calories a day, you know what yeah. I mean?
1: So, yeah. I mean, just take the biggest loser case as a, again, the extreme example to kind of show the point, right? Like I mentioned, both groups, the groups who s- were successfully maintaining the weight loss at, you know, 24% versus the ones who basically regained most of their lost weight they're both cut about the same number of calories from their baseline diet, right?
0: By um, by that, you do you mean percentage, like compared to baseline, or do you mean like absolutely, like absolutely. both? It's it's a it's, okay.
1: a, it's about three hundred or so calories per day. They're both decreased from baseline.
0: So they're both eating like say fifteen hundred calories each, fifteen hundred calories each.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but they're they're more than that. They're probably more like two thousand or something, but. Yeah, so if, of course, this is a small group and they're not randomized, so so they might be different. So we thought it was better to compare uh, on an individual basis, what was happening over time for each person. So for, for the group who had regained most of the lost weight, they had cut on average by about 300 calories from baseline. Now, I don't recall if that group at baseline were eating the same number of calories as the group who had maintained the weight loss. But what I do know is that they had cut a similar amount of calories, right? So so you've got these two groups who had cut similar amounts of calories. One group was maintaining much lower amount of body weight than the other. And that feedback circuit should have told them they should be eating way more calories, right? So they're able to maintain the the one hypothesis is that they're able to maintain only cutting 300 calories because their physical activity is so much higher, right? That they uh, can they can basically eat the same amount of calories and maintain the weight loss because the physical activity offsets that that appetite that should have been much higher um, because they'd lost the, the more weight.
0: This is so interesting because even now talking through, I've read all of your studies. Even now talking through this, make it makes so much more sense to me. So would you say that for weight loss? because I know Herman's of the belief that for weight loss, diet is more uh, important than exercise, like uh, like what you're eating with regards to being in a caloric deficit. But although exercise, he, he gave plenty of reasons mm-hmm. why exercise is incredibly important for health. But for weight loss specifically, diet is more important. And then would you say for weight, weight maintenance after weight loss that exercise actually increases in importance?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, again, the data show that um, and this is again not just our studies but it seems like it seems like adding exercise during a weight loss program and you get different people doing different amounts of exercise doesn't contribute that much more weight loss it can right for extremely different amounts of physical activity John J. Kasich has shown that you know very high doses of exercise can do a you know, incremental job of of losing more weight during a weight loss intervention. But again, it's a tiny effect compared to the, um, to the cutting of calories in the diet. Um, but you're right again, that it seems like something flips at some point where um, it seems like the increase in physical activity is more important over the long run um, from a weight maintenance perspective or weight loss maintenance perspective, um, than the calorie cutting. But again, that doesn't mean that you can just, you know, eat whatever you want or <laughs> whatever right. That right, is. right, right. But, um, but it seems like there is a flip that takes place. And when does that happen? I don't know. And I think it would be fun to kind of try to tease that out with, again, frequent measurements of the same people over time uh, trying to dissociate, you know, what was the greatest explanation for the variance in weight loss during the weight loss phase, what's the greatest explanation for the variance in the ability to maintain weight loss? Subsequently, um, measuring you know energy expenditure at various time points, trying to measure some of the subsets of the things that actually feed into energy expenditure. Um, you know why is the energy expenditure doing this? Because again, all we have is an observation at this point about uh, metabolic rate. We don't know exactly what's causing that. Um, and then also looking at appetite changes um, as this is kind of continuing, which is, you know, at this point, really completely not very well measured.
0: Yeah. I Oh, my gosh. This is so fascinating. Like, it's just so interesting because it really is like there's so many unknowns. And it's just I, I like even one question that just pops into mind, like, would there be a difference in the type of physical activity? Like, do you see if someone's doing strength training versus cardio when they're trying to... um maintain weight loss, would there be a difference there with regards to the feedback loop of, um, you know, what, you know, theoretically, um, for signal for controlling appetite? Or, you know, would it be different if someone's, you know, actually, like, doing more muscle building kind of activities versus cardio activity? Like, I want, it's just so interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's, there's an endless list of questions. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, and then again, it's like, I think everybody recognizes there are benefits to all of those kinds of uh, exercise, which are completely independent as as Herman likes to emphasize and people like to forget, completely independent of the weight loss. So you it's almost like, is it even ethical to do the study where you say to one group, no, you can only do the dieting part, right? And, and another group, nope, nope, resistance training for you. You can only do aerobic training, right? So I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting question, but it'd be fun to do those kinds of studies.
0: Yeah. I think clinically too, though, the idea that, you know, diet is at least for the weight loss perspective, seems to be the largest factor compared to exercise. Give some of my patients some relief, because if their goal is weight loss, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming to say, OK, I have to join this a whole fit, start a whole fitness program, do this whole entire fitness thing, and then also worry about, you know, um, what I'm eating. And sometimes that can be really overwhelming. And so sometimes patients can be re- reassured where, you know, when I say, well, actually, the majority of your weight loss is going to come through what you're you're eating um, and that exercise is important. And there's a zillion reasons why exercise is important for health. But don't feel like you have to start some like, you know, uh, really prescriptive exercise program at this moment, even if uh, and even though we know for sure there's so many health benefits to exercise. But I do think that sometimes this isn't Based on data. This is just my own clinical anecdotal experience. Sometimes it can give people some relief to know that they don't have to do everything at once. Because then we also see some patients who are like, I'm exercising. I was talking to this with Herman. You know, I have a patient who's done Ironman's who has prediabetes. She's amazing athlete she's obese but has prediabetes and has been struggling with pcos and she literally does ironmans which is like running a marathon swimming two miles and biking 100 miles and she can't understand like how she's not getting into a caloric deficit doing that much physical activity and so i think that that kind of explains that you know that that they're that physical activity is super healthy for you but then there's like a ceiling to how many calories you can kind of burn yeah and... I mean
1: but if, I think it's also an interesting open question right of would and it's again uh, unfortunately people like to think of this either or type scenario, right so I mean the first thing I thought of when you mentioned your patient before you said that they were pre-diabetes, I was like, well, why do they want to lose weight at all right I mean what's the what's the purpose right? I mean weight loss isn't a cosmetic issue it's a health issue and in that particular case, well yes, they have pre-diabetes and they could probably. Um, that calorie deficit per se might be beneficial in that, uh, in that case. And again, we don't really understand the reason why, but, um, but it could be. And, but it'd be interesting to see what the trade-off was, right? Like if that person couldn't do the same level of activity because they felt more tired because they cut the calories in their diet? Would that have a net positive effect? Even if they lost weight, would that have a net positive effect on their health if they were cutting back on their physical activity? I don't think we know the answers to those kinds of questions.
0: I think you're right. That's a great open-ended question. You're right. Well, what are your thoughts then um, on someone having um, excess adiposity, um, excess adipose tissue, someone who may be classified as overweight or obese that doesn't have any metabolic uh, derangements um, in their current lab work or any um, elevated blood pressure or any sequelae?
1: Yeah. So again, I'm not a physician. Um, I'm a research scientist who tries to understand different questions, but
0: well, you do. Well, you're being a little humble. You you do a lot of obesity research. And so you're very familiar with the data. So I just yeah, love your, your yeah, take. No, yeah. I mean,
1: one of the things that we know is that adipose tissue is a very healthy thing, right? I mean, we need adipose tissue. There's a group of patients who don't have adipose tissue and have severe metabolic complications, right? They have the same kind of diabetes and and horrible metabolic syndrome, Fatty liver, and so we need adipose tissue, and and in fact, you know, different experimental models have suggested that if you increase the capacity of adipose tissue to store calories, it acts as a buffer so that other tissues aren't exposed to the same degree of calorie excess and have to do things that they were not evolved to do. Um, and so, yeah, in, in that particular case, I mean, I think that we have this idea that. At, there's a one size sort of fits all that everybody sort of a, kind of who has the same sort of look or even if you quantify their adipose tissue fat mass very precisely should have exactly the same metabolic risk and i just don't think that's true and so yeah i really question whether or not um, it makes a lot of sense to take somebody who isn't displaying signs of you know poor metabolic health just because in somebody's view, they have excess adipose tissue that that should be treated, um, unless they want to, right? I mean, everybody has personal agency and they can do things for a variety of different reasons. But from a medical standpoint, um, it doesn't seem like anybody should be treated differently. If you're measuring, um, you know, blood pressure, and you're measuring, you know, their their lipids, and you're measuring glucose levels, and doing various tests to kind of make sure that they're healthy. That's the part that you should be focusing on, not whether or not they look fatter than they should be.
0: Absolutely and so actually in our clinical practice statement that I was so thankful you were um, an author on in our pediatric section, there's actually a lot of emphasis on weight neutral discussion of healthy behavior. so not even talking about weight loss just focusing on healthy things like eating healthy foods and just exercise and being active and looking at things like you know biomarkers and blood pressure rather than weight um, as being like a big focus for for children just to make sure that, they're healthy overall, like taking the entire thing into the picture without regards to just BMI.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. no, exactly. I mean, and I think as research scientists, I think we need to better understand there, there are these associations between adiposity and these metabolic complications. And there's clear, you know, at the population level, there's clear greater risk for type 2 diabetes and a variety of other conditions uh, that, that are associated strongly with obesity. And we know from a variety of you know studies with bariatric surgery and now some of the newer, more effective medications for weight loss, that they do have benefits metabolically, but teasing out exactly how those different treatments and how weight loss works to kind of create those different benefits. And does it only work during the period of time where you're actively losing the weight or does, it, does that kind of recur if once weight stabilizes after a period of time? Well, it seems like No, a lot of that is persistent from the kind of SOS studies um, in Sweden with the bariatric surgery cohort. And I think we'll have more data um, now with a lot of the GLP-1 agonists as they're on the market for longer periods of time. But how that works exactly is still a little bit of a mystery. I mean, and and I, I think it's really fascinating to try to understand not just how those different interventions lead to sustained weight loss over time, which is a completely separate set of questions that a lot of people are interested in, but how is it that weight loss per se gives rise to these changes in insulin sensitivity, gives rise to changes in, um, you know, the distribution of where fat is stored on the body and how does that impact the biochemical processes that are responsible for poor metabolic health with lots of theories, lots of ideas about that. But um. I don't know that we really know definitively.
0: I agree. You know, there are certain diseases where we do have great data for weight loss as an intervention helping to improve outcomes. So, for example, hypertension. So um, weight loss can has been demonstrated in numerous trials for uh, primary hypertension to be an excellent way to lower both systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Of course, not in everyone, but in a majority of patients, it actually can make an impact um, how much blood pressure medication someone's on. Um, we do know that from also data that uh, weight loss can also improve with sleep apnea, can also help with heart failure. Um, And so there are certain conditions where excess um, adiposity and losing that weight can help to improve. But I guess my question would be for someone that doesn't have any pathology, you know, like someone who's perfectly you know, healthy, normal blood pressure, normal hemoglobin A1C, normal lipids, but they are technically at a BMI over 30, you know, is there any reason why they should actually lose weight? There are some scientists, I think, who I've seen some opinions where they believe that the excess adiposity, you're kind of just in a holding zone until the pathology surfaces. And so to encourage um, weight loss and maintaining of a, in the healthy weight range is, you know, recommended. I don't, I don't know. If we, yeah.
1: This is why I'm not a physician <laughs> because I don't have to make these kinds of recommendations. I mean, I just think it's fascinating that we, we have a lot of data that yes, as you kind of say, even these very basic things like blood pressure, blood pressure goes down when you lose weight. Is that because leptin goes down? I mean, we know that leptin has an effect on a lot of the central pathways that regulate blood pressure. Is it because of extracellular fluid just decreasing? Is it because of physical pressure on your kidneys in some sense? John Hall says that there's some aspect of that. We just don't even know the physiology of that basic question is it's just because you're now eating less sodium because you are, have cut calories in your diet and your sodium has decreased or you're changed the quality of your diet. So your potassium has gone up. I, I mean, it's just like we just recognize, oh, yeah, well, when people lose weight, their blood pressure goes down and, you know, a lot of other factors change. But it, I, I mean, the physiology underlying that, I mean, again, maybe it's just based on my own ignorance because I didn't. Get well trained in these different areas. I'm a physicist by training, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it, maybe maybe this is all well known, but I certainly don't know. it.
0: Now, I, I don't think we know the answer to, to those things when it comes to obesity. I think that there's the, these are still a lot of questions that we're trying to fi- you know figure out. Right. And but so- yeah, so
1: for that particular patient, I mean, yeah, if I, if I was a physician and they seemed perfectly healthy and happy at that at that level of adiposity, and they were, it wasn't limiting what they were doing in their life, and whose business is it to say that they should be treated? I mean, it just seems crazy.
0: Totally agree. And, and on the counter end of that, I've seen many patients with severe peripheral artery disease with severe, really uncontrolled diabetes and, and various other issues, even requiring amputations that are a BMI of 19. So not having excess adiposity does not necessarily guarantee you perfect health. Uh, There's obviously various components that go into this from genetics to lifestyle and, you know, different factors. So I think that's important too, because, you know, I think sometimes people think weight loss is the answer to everything. And I think that there's a lot more, to it's so much more complex and nuanced. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, just even you know different ethnicities and their distribution of body fat. Even the things that we know are well associated with obesity. You know, a South Asian man has a much higher risk of those obesity-associated uh, complications at a much lower BMI than you know a woman from European ancestry. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating to look at those ethnic differences as well and try to understand what's physiologically responsible for those differences. And it seems like a lot of it has to do with, you know, where fat is being stored and um, what that sort of, like we mentioned before, the sort of expandability of of, uh, subcutaneous fat. I mean, that seems to be in some sense protective if you've got quite a bit of subcutaneous fat that can, you know, store more calories. Um, And if that's limiting in a way, either in the extreme case of lipodystrophy, where you don't have any fat cells. Um, to, to do that, you've got to store that fat in your liver and other places where it's really not intended to, to be stored. You get a whole bunch of metabolic complications. And then you get folks like South Asian men who have a much greater risk of you know fatty liver disease yep. and, and storing much more of their fat as visceral adipose tissue. And you know, these differences um in genetics of where fat is located are probably you know, probably at least as important as understanding what regulates body fatness overall, it's at least as important to understand why people store fat differently and have different capacities in different depots.
0: There's so many questions still left to be unanswered, but it's yeah, it's really it's it's super fascinating. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Stay tuned for next week when Kevin comes back for part two, where we deep dive into everyone's favorite controversial diet topic, which is low-carb versus low-fat diets. We discuss different diet fads, different diet trends, and we really get into the science, including Kevin's phenomenally done metabolic ward trials. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like to debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at neilblardomd and our podcast page at Wellness Fact versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.